Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Today's episode of Life Sentences is about a big, short life of furious intensity and creative brilliance, but also a life of destruction, disability and desire. I never met Gillian Mears, but having read Leaping into Waterfalls, I really feel as if I have. She comes to life in Bernadette Brennan's biography in an unusually three-dimensional, visceral way. Sometimes that's confronting, and sometimes it's very moving. Born in Grafton in New South Wales in 1964, Gillian blazed bright for a tragically brief time as a writer who captured the experience of rural Australia in her short stories and novels, including The Mint Lawn, Fine Flower, and most triumphantly in her masterpiece, Foles Bread. Family, violence and horses are central themes of her work, which often has a strong magical quality. She died in 2016, having suffered from multiple sclerosis for several years, which did not stop her from taking off on the most extraordinary solo road trip in her converted ambulance, Ant and Bee, to write and love her way along the New South Wales coast. I spoke to her biographer, Bernadette Brennan, via Zoom in Sydney. Now, tell us, first of all, how this new biography of Gillian Mears came to you, because I'm finding that with every biographer, it's different. You know, some people are approached and officially anointed by the subject. Some are approached by family. Some are invited to consider this by a publisher. So what was your story? Mine was purely self-motivated. I had worked for two years in the archives in Canberra at the National Library on Helen Garner's work. And it was such a thrill in the end putting that together and to weave a kind of story of her life that when I published that book in 2017, I thought I'd I'd just like to do this one more time. Uh, My real interest is in Australian women writers. And I thought they have to be a good writer, in my opinion. So I was reading around, seeing who I could be interested in. I actually went down to the Greer Archive when it opened and spent a day there and thought, no, I I don't want this person in my head for a few years. I I, I don't want that. So I thought maybe there was no other writer or archive that was going to grip me. And I started rereading Gillian Mears and thought, wow, you can really write. And she had died in 2016, as had Georgia Blaine and George's mother, Anne Deverson. And I narrowed down my interest and I thought, I wonder if I could do a joint biography of Anne and Georgia, which would be interesting, mother and daughter, which I think Michelle Arrow is now doing. Uh, She's got a fellowship for a history project. Um, Or Gillian Mears. And I had a coffee with Michelle de Kretzer who said, have you thought of writing about Gillian Mears? And I said, oh, look, I've, I'm just rereading her work. And she said, oh, look, I think she might have a couple of scrapbooks in the State Library. And that set me off. I then went on the search and found this enormous archive and I was gripped. And I actually, I actually didn't want to sign a contract with a publisher. You ask if a publisher approached me. I had an understanding with text publishing who had published my previous book and Michael Haywood had said, yes, of course, I'll publish whatever you write. But I didn't want to sign a contract because I wasn't sure that I could pull it off. I didn't know if I could shape this life effectively enough to make it work and to do justice. Uh, So I put that off for about two years and so really was free to write and research 
to my own demands and what I needed. Well, you've done more than pull it off, Bernadette. It is just superb and momentous and majestic. And it's haunted me ever since I've read it. It's just coming back and reverberating at me in so many different ways. You know, I find myself walking and thinking about her or cooking and thinking about her or, you know, she's just invaded my psyche as a result of the power of your conjuring of her. I just want to go back because it's just an irresistible thing that you said, you know, considering the Greer archive and then deciding that you didn't want that person in your head, she would be a terrifying prospect given her views on biographers as real parasites and leeches. I mean, she really went for Christine Wallace when Christine wanted to write a biography and indeed did. So was it that or was it the politics or what was it that made you think no? Oh, that's interesting. So I knew that history and, but I thought, well, if she's collected this archive, collated this archive over so many years and she's actually given it to the library down there at Ballyu Library. There must be some interest on her part that someone would come along and discover, you know, things that were worth talking about. So that didn't put me off. What put me off was the tone of her voice of things that I read over that one day when I spent there. And I thought, I'm not sure that I like this person enough, which was not, uh, you know, it was not a deal breaker for doing a biography. But when you do a biography, that person, interestingly, you say the, the biography I've written now haunts you. This person does actually, for me, invade my spirit, my soul, my body. You think about them, you dream about them. And and it was difficult at times with Gillian, but I didn't. I just knew with the Greer Archive, I did not want that kind of voice and personality in my life at that time. I think I can understand that. I want to ask you a little bit about the Helen Garner archive. Did it feel strange to be wandering around in an embargoed archive, seeing things about people who are still alive, you know, it must have required enormous discipline and self-control in terms of discretion, because you couldn't really discuss it with anybody while you were sort of wading through it. That's absolutely true. I could occasionally discuss it with my husband when we'd meet up at the end of the day, and I'd I'd be sort of, my eyes were popping, and I'd say, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you'll never believe, you know, what I read today. Fortunately, because he's not in the literary world, and I think he just forgot anything I said within about 10 minutes, and I knew that was the case. But one of the beautiful things I could do was I could actually talk to Helen about it. So I would sometimes be sitting in the archive in the National Library, and I would see something that was so overwhelming, I would immediately text her and she would text me back. Oh, I'd forgotten that was in there or whatever. I do remember seeing her at a text publishing party in Melbourne after I had spent maybe six months in the archive. And I went up to her and I said, "Um, I think you're going to need to extend that embargo because you're going to lose your house. (laughs) And I said to her, you know, there's an awful lot of defamatory stuff in there. And she said, oh, I probably should think about that. Um, but it was just, I was I was half joking, but not really. But I'm interested in that business of checking in with her, because even that, isn't there a risk that in the present, the subject will somehow revise how they feel about something they wrote earlier, or they may have forgotten the intensity of the feelings that they had when they wrote something in their diary. So how can you rely on the present consciousness of Helen in checking in with her about the past? 
No, I couldn't and I didn't need to, though. Two, two things there. You're absolutely right. And part of um, contacting her and getting closer to her over the, the years of research was arguably problematic because you don't want to be too close to your subject. And a number of people had said to me, oh, the last thing you want to do is be writing a biography of someone who's alive. Well, that's another interesting thing that might be worth talking about. Fortunately, she was absolutely rigid in not interfering, not reversing any ideas, not rewriting history, if you like. And it was more things like, I didn't actually go to her for validation or confirmation of things that I found. I came across a 37-page typed story, which was extremely powerful. And I, I give it a sort of a, a summary in the, in, the, in the book on Ghana that I wrote. But it had never been published. It was actually extremely important for understanding the formation of ideas that fed into Cosmo Cosmolino. But I said to Helen, do you remember this story? And she said, which is what I originally thought, it had the name of the second section of Cosmo Cosmolino. And she thought it was that story. And she, she went away and had a look and came back and sent me an email and said, oh, I've just checked. No, it's not that story. I think I remember writing the story that you found. And I said, would you like me to ask the staff to copy it and to send you a copy? And she said, no. I remember the feelings I had when I wrote that story and they were too strong and I don't want to go back there. Um, so those kinds of moments in the archive were fantastic to have the living writer and it was actually triggering her memory. She had forgotten lots of things and that was fine. I didn't need any um, you know, tick from her to say you can talk about it or, or I want to change what it was. Yeah, I can imagine that. So is there something that you learnt in particular about the process of biography for you working on the Helen Garner archive that you could then apply to this very different kind of archive when it came to Gillian Mears? Yes, the, the lessons I learnt writing the Garner book I think were invaluable for coping with the sheer amount of material I had with the Gillian archive what I learnt, I think, most was the importance of the researcher's eye to find the threads of the story. And when I found the Gillian Mears archive, which was so huge, 157 boxes, thousands of hours of recordings and photographs, etc., the overwhelming nature of it often got to a point where I thought, I don't know if I could find my way through here, but you can. So that you might spend eight hours reading diary entries in tiny, tiny scrawled writing. And sometimes, especially if there'd been a recent um, breakup with a lover, you would read six hours of heartache and repetition. But then there'd be a line, there'd be one line or one remembrance or one image. And you'd think that's the story. That's, that's what I need from here. So I would just take notes on that. Having said that, making it sound like I was so on top of it all, I got to the end of taking my notes, largely straight onto a laptop typing, and I had more than 300,000 words. So, you know, and that wasn't even the work I had to analyse her actual literary output. So I had way too much still. But I think for me... Uh, this was the second time I'd done it and it was easier in a sense because I had a sense of the need to shape this story. I still didn't think I could do it. I wasn't sure how I'd pull it together, 
But there came a moment in the writing when I thought, I've done it. I've, I've pulled this together. This is so exciting. This, this is actually having a coherent shape of someone's life and writing. Well, and I mean, it sounds very brutal and callous to say so, but you had the narrative arc of life and death, which, you know, when you're writing about someone who's still alive, you have to find a different way to to end a biography, which can be very problematic. Now, right at the beginning of your wonderful book, you compare Gillian, or Gillian, I think, compares herself to a butcher bird. But I think of her as a bower bird because of this desire to collect so many scraps and arrange them in pleasing patterns and and the seductive process of well everything about really what a bower bird does so what what is the butcher bird image what does that convey to you why did she see herself that way and what do you think about my bower bird well I'll go to the bower bird first absolutely I would agree and that's precisely what she did I think I think like many writers do, you observe so many things in the world, in your world, and you pull little bits from everywhere and you weave them together to make a story. And I often used to call myself a bowerbird. I think I just I think it's a natural kind of way of of an imaginative process of seeing the world and bringing it together. So yes, Gillian definitely had that. She used to call herself the butcher bird again and again and again. She was very hard on herself. And what she said the butcher bird qualities were that she had was that the butcher bird had the most beautiful lyrical song, but could also be brutal and could peck out the eyes of fledglings, could be very, very harsh and uncaring. And she knew that about herself and she was prepared to metaphorically peck out the eyes of fledglings for her art and she just named it and she knew that and to meet her she was so gentle and expansive and open and generous but there was also this very complicated and contradictory side of her or sides of her which were not that yeah, and I think you, you do explore that and we get a much deeper understanding of that and how that informs the work. Now, she'd studied archaeology and in a sense, it feels like she left her life as a dig for her biographer to excavate. Absolutely. And it's astounding to come across um, addresses to the biographer when she's putting these things in and she's 25, 26. You think, wow, you had this sense of your future that someone would definitely come along and write your biography. The first time I saw the address to the biographer, so biographer of the future, this is what I'm hoping you'll be like or whatever, I, I was shocked and it really did play with my head. Then I quite enjoyed them over the years as she would continue to address this mythical woman she decided it was going to be who was going to come along. Um, this idea of uh, putting everything in and expecting the biographer to come along and find it all is kind of characteristic to Gillian. It's a sense of self-belief that she had at the same time as she had a crippling sense of inadequacy. So she often would say, you know, I, I just know that someone will be there and someone will be interested in my life and they'll put all this together. 
But it's interesting that you say at one stage that you felt that she played you with that kind of direct address of hello, biographer, because she didn't lead you astray or down rabbit holes. She was not ever, it seems to me, deliberately, mischievously misleading. I wouldn't say deliberately, mischievously misleading, but she certainly tried to steer her biographer's vision towards a style and a version of a narrative that suited her purposes. So there was a time, for example, when I had read many, many, many days of really disturbing, dark sexual fantasies. And I had no intention of engaging with these in the biography. I thought this is not helping us understand Gillian's uh, writing, her state of mind, whatever. And to get to the end of it was probably about five days of reading, and find a paragraph that said, so biographer, or so scholar of the future, she said, I could have just left all this out, but the reason I've put all this in is I think it's really important for you to engage in it because I think it'll help you understand who I am. And I remember sitting there in the State Library going, oh, Gillian, no. So then my decision was not to include all the details of that, but just to put a line or two that this was what was happening in her life at the time. And she she asked the biographer to, to engage with that. Uh, there was one other really interesting thing, and it might be of interest to any of the researchers that uh, are listening to your uh, podcast. I only met Gillian the once, and it was to hand her at the ALS gold medal for the prize for Foles Bread. And we had a back and forth email correspondence because she was moving from Adelaide and coming to Sydney and I wanted to be polite and what was the most respectful way to hand this prize to her and so it was decided that we would meet for coffee she said let's meet for coffee when I arrive in Sydney and she changed the venue and the date a few times and that was fine so the date came along it happened to be the horse's birthday which was very fitting the 1st of August and we met for coffee which horse hang on which horse in the Southern Hemisphere, the horse's birthday is considered to be the 1st of August. So it's it's just a, a day. It's called the horse's birthday. So we met on that day and she signed my copy of Foles Bread about the horse's birthday. And, and we talked for a couple of hours and we had two coffees each and a muffin. Now, at this point, I knew nothing about Gillian's private life, really. And I had no idea that she had spent years being obsessed about her sugar addiction and her caffeine addiction. So it was no, nothing odd to me that we had a couple of coffees and a muffin. We were there for three and a half hours and that was the end of it. So suddenly when you're in the archive and you discover yourself in the archive, it's always this kind of sick making feeling. You think, oh, there's, there's my email, there's my name. Um, so she had spun a story to Jane Palfreyman, who was her publisher, saying, oh, this Benedict Brennan seems to be just harassing me, desperately wanting to meet me and give me this medal. And I was thinking, well, then, then there was the emails to prove that I wasn't. I could actually see what I'd said. Uh, and Jane Palfreyman had sent one back and said, oh, I hope she's not a stalker. And so, you know, I could have a laugh with Jane about that now. But Gillian then has the medal pasted into the archive. And next to it, she has a, a little yellow sticky, which says, I wish I had received this medal alongside my two friends, Caffeine and Sugar. And now that for me was fascinating because I think, well, it's not that important. It's just an anecdote. But because I was there and because I know what happened, I actually know that that's not true. So it's a very useful thing for a biographer and a researcher to discover because you think, I can't totally trust the version that's been put in here. 
So that's that's really good, I think. That is so interesting, isn't it, that she would lie to herself and to the archive about something so seemingly trivial as the fact that she did have coffee and she did have sugar. Yes, I think it was probably to do with the fact that she was pleased to get the award, but at the time she didn't know really what the ALS gold medal was. And when later she found out that, well, yes, you know, Randolph Stowe got it and David Maloof, and so that was great. But she was in a pretty difficult time at that point. She had just come to Sydney. She had not walked for quite a while. She was in a wheelchair. She was convinced that she was going to be able to walk again by working with a particular physiotherapist, and that's why she came to Sydney. And she was broke, so she wasn't that impressed with the award because it only came with $1,000. And uh, she then won the Colin Roderick Award, which was $20,000, but she really wanted to win the Miles Franklin. And then she missed out on that, but then she won the Prime Minister's Literary Award. So I think at that point she was um, a bit fractious. She wasn't that happy with her life. She wasn't happy with herself. And she this book, she had spent over 10 years writing and she wanted it to be the really huge absolute winner of a book and so I think maybe when she's putting that together in the archive maybe that bit about the coffee and the the sugar is part of some deeper disappointment that this wasn't quite what I wanted to get maybe that's me suggesting I didn't put it in the book because I don't know the answer, but it is a very interesting thing for biographers and researchers to just to be aware of and to know they could possibly be getting sold a pup. (laughs) Absolutely. Traps for young players. Now, you tell us that she kept multiple diaries, and I'm wondering what was the function of these multiple diaries? Were there different degrees of intimacy and revelation, or were they for different aspects of her life, like her writing life, and her day-to-day, and in which did you find her most intimate self? They were all extremely intimate. There was no gradations, so she was in all of them. And sometimes when there would be two or three diaries being kept a day, sometimes she would tell the same stories in each. And I thought, why have you done this? I was speculating that perhaps, you know, diary number two was closer to hand when she decided to write this particular thing out. Other times she was much more rigid in that she would keep one diary, which was her intimate, private, personal diary, and the next book would be her travel diary. She'd be in India, for instance, and she'd, be, she'd write about things that were happening there. Then she would have a third book, which would be what she called a book of the body, and it would be what was going wrong with her body usually. Uh, but again, they became fluid. The boundaries between them would become fluid, and she would just start writing other things you know, the same thing or different things in each one. So there was never a time when there was no diary written. She was absolutely obsessive about keeping one. And the extraordinary thing about the diaries was the extent to which she would record her day so that she would often start at three or four in the morning and she would wake up and it would be whatever dreams she had, uh, how she was feeling, her meditation, whatever. She would keep on recording through the day. She would come back to it 11 o'clock at night and she'd say things like, mm, what else? And then she'd say blessings from today and she'd list the blessings. And then what else? And then suddenly you'd get 1.06 a.m. Oh, I, you know, this happened. So there's this constant cogitation going on. 
as she's processing every single detail of her day and recording it, which is in one sense gold for the biographer. Uh, and a lot of the time she's recording it with no further sense of uh, reader because it's, we're talking 30 years of these, of these diaries. She's just churning it all out. Extraordinary. Amazing. Amazing. Now, as well as this very, very rich archive, you had her friends and her family to talk to. And for her family in particular, the grief of her loss is still fresh and raw. So I was just wondering whether you could talk about how you navigated their sensitivities around her in her life, because she was a pretty complex member of the family, as well as the fact that you had to navigate their grief? Very good question. My first approach to the family happened in 2018. Gillian had only been dead about 18 months, so it was very, very new. I spoke to Gillian's agent, Gabby Nayer, and I spoke to Jane Palfreyman, who had been her publisher. And we decided the best thing to do would be to write to Peter Mears, Gillian's father, and just simply to introduce myself. And so I thought about that for a little while, the kind of letter I would write. And the letter I wrote, because by that stage I knew a little bit about the complexity of her life and that she was one of four girls and uh, there were family um, tensions, um, I wrote a letter in which I said uh, that I would like to write this biography in honour of Gillian to, to make sure people continue to remember her work and to return to her work. But I actually introduced myself as a, one of seven children, the youngest of seven children, who has three sisters, myself and three brothers, and also the mother of two daughters. And I thought at the time, you know, maybe the academic uh, side of things would say, that's not how you introduce yourself. But I just knew that that was the right thing to do. And it was. And I think it's actually extremely important because it has formed who I am, but also the age I am has put me in a position where I was able to understand many of the complex family dynamics and and a lot of the pain. So I wrote that letter and asked Peter if he would share it with Gillian's sisters, if he felt comfortable with doing that. And a little time went past and then he contacted me and said, yes, we think you should come up to Grafton and meet uh, Sonia, who was living there, and Yvonne, who was living there. Gillian's sister, Karen, was living somewhere else, and and to meet Peter. And so I flew up there on the first date that they suggested, which happened to be Grafton Show Day. So it was extraordinary because I flew into the airport. Peter picked me up and took me around to show me uh, the different sites in Grafton. And there was a very moving moment. We were sitting outside the Anglican Cathedral and Peter was explaining uh, some of the dynamics of religion in their family or, or no religion for the, for the daughters. And he was also explaining some of the issues surrounding the estrangement that was currently going on in the family between sisters. And he asked me very quietly, have any of your siblings, has there ever been an estrangement in your family? And I was easily able to say, oh, yes, and explain to him. And I think that just set up a sense of trust, maybe. 
And when we got to the uh, showground, of course, Yvonne is there with Gillian's treasured horse, Koru, and these beautiful young girls, one of whom is who's learning to how to look after a horse, in, entering their first event. And this young girl is wearing Gillian's riding jacket. So even when I tell you this now, I get goosebumps. It was one of those magic kind of introduction to family and, and Grafton things. And there was a lot of contention between Gillian and Yvonne about a manuscript that Yvonne wrote that she felt Gillian had uh, drawn too much from to write her own work. And of course, I say, Yvonne says to me, you can ask me anything you like. And of course, I go straight to it and say, well, can I read your manuscript? <laughs> and she says, oh my goodness, you know, you really don't mess around, do you? And then said, look, how about in a year's time, depending on what I think of you, I might let you. So, and then it was a lovely beginning. We then took the horses back and she realised I loved horses and her dingo pup liked me and she said, this poppy doesn't usually like, you know, people. And we spent a lovely day together going to Gillian's grave, going swimming in the cold river where she used to take Gillian swimming. And the next day I went to Sonia's house and sat with Sonia. And there there I am with Sonia. She's the youngest of these four sisters. I'm the youngest of my seven children and we talked and she cried a little and we we just hit it off and so from there uh, the relationships developed. It was never easy because there's many different versions of the family stories and trauma and there is still family trauma and this book uh, has been welcomed by one sister. I haven't heard the response from another sister Peter has said some lovely things. He's very happy to have the book. And Gillian's youngest sister, Sonia, died suddenly this year in May. So without having read the book. So it's, you know, there's still a lot of tragedy and pain surrounding the family. But I'm I'm hopeful that, like Karen, they, they celebrate the book and think this is a, a celebration of Gillian. In all her flawed beauty... One of the things that really struck me, Bernadette, was the incredible symmetry, in a way, with Helen Garner in terms of having writing siblings and there being tensions around that because, of course, Helen's sister Catherine Ford is also a writer and it's no secret that there have been a lot of tensions between Helen and her sisters. Did that strike you at the time? Oh, absolutely. I was kind of shocked and... As it went on, I became increasingly shocked and I actually sent Helen a text one day and said, goodness, Gillian Gillian and her family make your boundaries seem positively rigid. (laughs) Helen sent me a text back going, whoa, ha. (laughs) So, uh, yes, I suddenly thought, oh, the old Ghana was pretty easy on this score. It's interesting that you use the word shock there because, I mean, one of the things about this book is that you don't pass judgment on Gillian. And as you say, she can be quite brutal and manipulative and she uses people. You don't pass judgment on her. But did she actually ever shock you by anything she thought or wrote or did? That's a really interesting question. 
And the answer is probably yes, but I have now synthesised it into my head and understanding so much I've got to sort of go back to try and think. Uh, Maybe not shock, but I did become exasperated many times and I I still don't judge her for it. But, for example, her choice to refuse any kind of Western medicine to treat her MS and the lengths to which she went for healing processes that were so damaging to her and that she continued to put herself, if you like, in harm's way. Um, There were times when I could barely breathe. You know, come on, Gillian, just don't do this. But it's interesting, uh, this judgment thing. It never occurred to me to judge my subject. I... There were times I thought it's, it's irrelevant whether I approve or not approve, really. This is about um, telling the shape of a life. And I maybe it's the age I'm at, but I certainly am at a point where who am I to judge anyone? Everybody has very complex lives. So my job as the biographer was to show this life in all of its complexity, but to allow it to stand for any reader to find what they wanted to find about this person. And I'm really pleased I did do it that way um, because I've had responses from readers telling me various ways in which this book has helped them understand their family dynamics, their dying father, you know, different um, aspects which the biography of this one writer is influencing and helping people in their own lives in different ways and these people didn't even know who she was. So that kind of works for me. Because it's a story of complexity. It's a story of humanity, which is flawed and beautiful and ugly and all those things that we all are. Now, I want to, I want to go to an event that really interests me in the way you don't overplay it. Because I think that possibly some other biographer might make much more of this particular incident than you do. It's the death of her friend, Sandra. So at a very early age, in a very shocking way, she loses her best friend. And this is something that I would think of as a defining tragedy very early on, which is a confrontation not only with death, but with violence. So I'm just wondering whether you could say something about Sandra's death and why you make the decision to treat it in the way that you do. So Sandra was Gillian's best friend and they were 15 going on 16 when Sandra's mother shot Sandra, shot Sandra's younger brother Johnny and shot herself. I think it was one of possibly the most defining moment of Gillian's life. She says it turned her into a writer. She wrote about it in her diaries at the time, but more importantly, her Collection Fine Flower is largely about Sandra's death and the stories tell the story of a girl who has died and you Grace, Gracie Wire, her name is in the stories, but gradually you put that together. So I have to tell this very important and crucial moment. It's coming very early in the biography because the subject is only 15, 16 years old. I know there is going to be a very dark narrative that is coming later in this biography. 
how much darkness do you put in too early on? And actually, what more can I say about it except that this is what happened? Gillian finds out about it at school. Sandra dies. Gillian is inconsolable and cannot attend the funeral. She is so upset. There isn't a lot more to say about it without you know, just getting the same kind of comments given to me by her sisters and people around that time. So what I chose to do was, um, Gillian herself said, my childhood ended that day. So it was fairly obvious to me that structurally, Sandra's death had to end the section where she was saying that's the end of my childhood, even though she's still only just going into her final year of school. So I put it there as a kind of shocking moment, as a, oh, (laughs) How do you deal with this? And I put it there in a sense quite lightly in that I don't go into it in lots of detail. But I then return to it at different times during the narrative. So I come back to it in the discussion on fine flour and those stories. And then I come back to it in my discussion of Foles Bread because in Foles Bread she has the little boy with Down syndrome as did Sandra's younger brother Johnny. And so she was honouring him still. Through her life, there would be the day of the the anniversary of Sandra's death. She would often write about it in her diary. I'm 21 now. What would she have looked like? At her wedding, she's saying, what would Sandra have thought? I would have had Sandra to tell about this. But also she got to a point where she was saying, I'm not so sad about it anymore. I'm okay." And that was fairly early on. Now, I don't know if that's true. And by that stage, she's only 17, 18, 19 anyway. Um, But it is such a central incident you haven't forgotten it I didn't feel I needed to belabor it any more than I did it's so powerful and for I think the way I write is that the reader can make of these moments what they will I've certainly made it as a central thing that happened in her life that caused greater trauma but it's up to the reader to to decide how much um, power that narrating of mine has does that make sense It does, but I'm interested in all the decisions that you're making consciously and unconsciously about the weight that you give to that incident and how it's going to echo through the rest of the book. Because, for example, we don't know anything about Sandra's mother's state of mind. We don't know whether there's a long history of mental illness. We don't know where the father of these children, where her husband might be. I mean, there are so many things you don't tell us. Oh, that's exactly right. So firstly, because I don't know the the mental state of uh, Sandra's mother, there were a few other stories surrounding that that death. For example, the school, Sonia told me, the school uh, decided to put on a memorial for Sandra. And so they just said to Gillian, can you go around to her house and get a photo of her for the for the booklet, you know, as you do this unthinking, you know, because you were her best friend. So you go around to the house where your best friend was killed. And of course, Gillian being the good girl said, yeah, sure. And then couldn't, couldn't walk, just sobbed and broke down. And Sonia said, I'll go and do it. But there was no counselling. There was nothing else around at that time, which I point out. So that's the decision about, you know, I could have told that story, but by then it changes the flow of the narrative. The, the narrative's got a rhythm. Uh, Sandra's father, like so many characters in this book, is still alive and living in Grafton. So it's his story to tell, not mine. And there's so many stories in this book which are just not mine to tell. And I had to make ethical decisions all the way through 
I will tell this amount because that helps you understand the subject. It helps you understand that novel. It helps you understand that story. But when it starts to impact too heavily on other people's lives, current lives who are living and breathing and generations of children who have come afterwards, that was my decision of I don't think that needs to go in because it doesn't help you understand Gillian Mears any further than what I've given you already. that she had as a result of this terrible incident a different sense of life and death and an elevated sense of the thrill of risk? I think it must have been extremely formative in this idea that she was already anxious about death which is you know some kids are and from an early age she had this this knot in her gut thinking my life is going to be over too quickly. And as it turns out, it was. Uh, and people who knew her in her early 20s say she burned so bright and so quickly. And I'm sort of grateful that she lived such a big life so quickly and furiously. But I think the trauma of that did exacerbate that anxiety she had about death and did make her live on the edge, live on the edge in a way that she wanted to feel absolutely alive. That that old thing of eros and thanatos, you know, sex and death. We, How do you feel most alive when you have this gnawing anxiety of death and, and nothingness? And I think she went for it. And I think, goodness, I can't even imagine being 15 and have such violence done to my loved one and then cope with it. I don't know how you do that, but it's certainly... And, I mean, one argument is that she lived her entire life with PTSD and and it was never actually, you know, diagnosed, treated properly, given the support that she needed. It's fascinating. I mean, it's funny, when you talk about her burning so bright, it reminds me of Heather Clark's book about Sylvia Plath, which she called, she called it The Blazing Life and Art. You know, it's called Red Comet, and it's got that kind of meteoric sort of sense of power and speed and velocity and intensity that Gillian's life has as well. I do think of her like that as a kind of a meteor shooting past us. Um, Let's talk a little bit about her relationship to her body and her physicality. She was very physical um, in terms of, you know, her relationship to horses, but also very much in her uh, disinhibited way of tackling sex, all bodily functions, really. She had no inhibitions about nudity or desire or gender. Do you think that when she uh, found out that she had multiple sclerosis, that maybe this lack of inhibition helped her to deal with illness and pain in that she was not ashamed of her body? She certainly was not ashamed of her body, but when when that body was healthy and functioning, but she did become ashamed of her body when it would not function properly. And for the years when she didn't realise that she had MS, she felt great fury at herself and at her body for its lack of sensation, for its lack of um, coordination. Uh, and she was forever finding something to blame for that. And she, for many years, blamed her own psyche 
my own anxiety, my own nastiness to my lover, my own submission to a powerful partner, that has caused this pain, this ataxia, that has caused me not to be able to feel my thighs. So I think actually she did actually become ashamed of her body. And then when she was out at Applebox Farm, when she really was in extremis and she was extremely thin, she couldn't walk, she was crawling around everywhere. There were times when she hid when a visitor came to call. Uh, and, you know, her best friend at the time, Clara Mann, remembers going out to visit and Gillian was nowhere and she didn't understand. And actually Gillian was hiding on the veranda and told her years later, I was so ashamed of my body. I was so ashamed that I couldn't walk, that I hid from you when you came to visit that time. So I think that was one of the great sadnesses, that shame of her body came into her understanding of herself and then as the MS progressed and when she was well, when she was out in Anton B and dancing in the dancing naked in the bush, you know, how wonderful, or dancing with wet board shorts on at night time, um, there was a, again a celebration of her body and that's when she met Mar Grounds and yet again could feel sensual and sexual after all these years of pain and trauma and that kind of reveling and beauty in her body. But then, of course, uh, the MS got particularly bad and then she felt terrible uh, loss and shame at the loss of function of her bowels her bladder her walking her sensation so uh, it was in a sense quite tragic how she came to speak of her body in the third person and be very angry at her body did she do what quite a few people do and give her illness a name no oh she no, she just called it this evil illness that was she didn't give it any other particular name. She she interestingly for a long time she was convinced that she could beat it. You know, once she finally got the diagnosis, she was relieved to have that diagnosis, but then thought, that's fine, you can call it MS, but it's not as if I'm gonna have it forever. She just refused to accept that this was possible. And so the different shamanic treatments she had, the different healers she went to this idea that she'd been cursed, she got that from a, a shaman in, in Venezuela, she got that from healers in the Philippines, and, and immediately she said, oh, well, I have to investigate that. That's I must have been cursed by a past lover or by someone who I've offended in my writing. So she had this idea that, okay, I'll accept that you've said I've got MS, but I'm really not going to have this forever, and then refused any kind of treatment that would have actually allowed her to function better. Why do you think she was so gullible when it came to alternative medicine and therapies, which some of which were patently absurd, like someone who told her that she should wear blue underpants and then taking the trouble of going to drink ayahuasca in the jungle, you know, which must have taken so much effort and been so difficult and uncomfortable and obviously didn't help in any way. Why was she so susceptible to this? She was always searching for some miracle cure. And each of the healers that she went to seemed to give her the slightest kernel of truth wrapped up in a whole lot of other stuff which was never going to help. So when she went to Venezuela and was prepared to, to drink all the herbs, all the different drugs that were going to give her the terrible diarrhoea and vomiting, 
That was because she'd met a man who said, my sister-in-law had had MS, he put in the past tense. And she went there and she has now been, she's now dancing. She's free. She's climbing mountains and she has been for 10 years. Now, that may well have been true because his sister-in-law may have, MS is relapsing, remitting, and she may have been in remission and feeling fine. But Gillian's by this stage was not going to be in remission. She was on a, a slide downwards, but she would cling to that. She would always find one little kernel of truth and say, oh, well, you know, it's worth trying this because I'll do anything to, to, to get rid of this. Mike Ladd tells a great story. He says um, when she was going off to Venezuela, he and some other friends said to her, you know, this is rubbish and you don't have the money and you really, this is very dangerous what you're doing and you shouldn't do this. And she just poo-pooed it. And uh, he says it was like the time, I think he says this, uh, when she comes back from the Philippines and says, look, the healers pulled a rusty nail covered in blood from my, you know, coccyx from my anus. And um, he says, well, that would have shown up on an X-ray. And she says, that is the most unhelpful kind of thinking. We don't need that kind of negativity. So it was a sort of openness to different forms of healing, which, you know, fine, there are lots of different forms of healing, but in these instances, they were dangerous for her. I know, and I actually marked that episode with the rusty nail with three exclamation marks on my copy of the book (laughs) going, what the fuck? (laughs) Now, I'm glad that you actually use the word masochism to describe some of her behavior. There's one incident where she lashes her feet together with bailing or binding twine to hold a particularly difficult pose in a Vipassana meditation. She also cut herself. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, she she was a woman that in one sense as I keep saying, had a strong sense of self-love and worth, but also a very strong masochistic streak. There was this um, constant need to punish herself. And, you know, people say to me now, you know, would you have become a friend of Gillian's? And I said, well, hopefully at a distance, you know, not too close up. But one of the things I would have liked to have said to her is, you know, ease up on yourself. You know, you're not this bad. Um But this masochistic streak was very strong through her life. Again, I wonder, you know, since Sandra's death, was it a survivor guilt thing? I don't know. I can't. That's pure speculation, so I didn't suggest that. But she did try and damage herself, often because she would consider that what she had done either in leaving a lover, in being awful to the next lover, in... Uh, having problems with her sisters, she would blame herself and say, I'm I'm not a good person. But if I punish myself in this way, well, then, you know, I can make amends. I think part of the masochism is tied to her addictive personality. And she did admit very easily, I, I am an addict. And one of her closest friends, Sharon Jones, said to me, if you're, if you're going to talk about Gillian, the most important thing to understand is she was an addict. And she became addicted to all sorts of things. But one of them was these different treatments. And one of them was also this compulsive need to punish herself, which is what she did. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very painful reading that stuff. It's, 
it's quite upsetting. Let's talk about another aspect of her life, which was her love life. It was messy, turbulent, intense, unconventional. There were men, there were women. She was hungry. She had a big sexual appetite. But obviously, one of the consistent themes or sort of traits she had was a, a liking for older men right from the get-go. She married her teacher from school. And then there was the relationship with Mar Grounds, who was effectively old enough to be her grandfather, really. Is that a Lolita complex? What is it? Yes, I think definitely with the Mar Grounds, uh, it was very much it's sort of an Oedipal complex at that point. There was She had a large drive. Her father adored her. She adored her father. She had a very large drive, particularly in the last two decades of her life, to she wanted to be more of a focus of her father's attention and she felt that she'd missed out on that. And I think there was an attraction to older men that saw her as beautiful and that would tell her she was beautiful as a kind of substitute for this sense that I am much more important to my father than she felt she was. Now, Peter will tell you she was extremely important to him and always was. And he really did look after her. He, you know, he bathed her bed sores. He collected her from hospital and fed her up so that she could manage. He he really did look after her and look out for her. But she seemed to always want more. I think part of that was tied to her loss of her mother when she was very young, in her 20s. And she she just wanted someone to care for her more than they they cared for anybody else. And of course, that doesn't quite happen with a parent. Uh, and I remember Sonia saying she wanted us to be her mother, you know, near the end. And Sonia saying, but we couldn't be, I was her sister. So I think the older men, particularly Mar Grounds, uh, suggested um, knowledge. He was unconventional, he was powerful. He was stable enough um, and I think she met up with him at a time when she was increasingly um, fragile with the MS and he was 75 at that point and thinking that he was getting old and going to die. Um, and the two of them just hit it off and they were in a sense very free together and they were, Marina tells me, Ma's daughter tells me that they were obsessed with sex and death, the two of them. So they talked about it all day long. And they found this kind of simpatico idea. Um, as for the, the marrying the school teacher and then the other older men that she was with, she went for people who seemed to know more than she did, who were the teachers. She was always hungry for knowledge. And these older, well, the school teacher, the older man, she, she thought in that way, you know, you're in year 12, I'm in love with my English teacher. You know, the poems she was writing were, you know, bleh, in her diary. Of course, when he then reciprocates uh, and, and she's just immediately thrown, I, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not in love with this guy, but he's older. He knows more about literature. He can introduce me to film and theatre and and he's got somewhere to live, and I think that's important. He's got a house, and I won't have to work, and I can write, and all I want to do is write because I really, really do not want to work. And that sort of expectation of why can't I just write? I want to travel and write and have babies, although she never did. That was her idea. 
Well, and, you know, when you talk about Mar Grounds, he didn't just live in a home, he lived in a kingdom. I mean, he could actually offer to share a kingdom with her. There's something incredibly seductive about where he lived on Bithri Inlet near Tathra. And when you talk about the way they were together, I remember him as being very charismatic and also incredibly childlike in his capacity for play. I mean, there was a an aspect of Mar which was prepared to be silly in a way that one is not expected to be silly anymore at a certain age. And I think that they would have had a delicious time together. Mm, that's a beautiful point, the play and the silliness. Absolutely, the two of them perfectly, perfectly matched, you know, at that time in their lives in a way. And also he, like she, had this thing about being naked. I mean, I do not remember seeing Ma wearing clothes unless he absolutely had to. So they were matched for kind of disinhibition. Mm, completely. And Marina tells the story of, uh, you know, she would she would be there and she would then be in her 20s and the pair of them would be forever on the bed and, and naked. And up, you know, in front of his bed was photos, naked photos of all the other lovers he'd had, all the other women. And Gillian wrote to some of these other women and wrote to Ma's first wife. And a lot of these letters are in the archive and has written to them about hers and Ma's sex life and saying, did you feel this? And did you like that? And I've tried this. And the disinhibition is absolute. And, and yes, Ma was always naked. um, And that was how it was. And you know, in one sense, and she called it at one point, you know, her sort of pleasure dome. I have to ask you this. I mean, it sounds like a prurient question, but I think it's valid because I've known of other writers who I've interviewed who've told me that privately they have written pornography and wished that they had the courage to publish pornography, but that they thought it would be so damaging to their reputation that they couldn't do it in their lifetime. Did, in the archive, did did Gillian write porn? Yes. Well, what she wrote was she narrated in great detail the pornographic fantasies that she and Ma indulged in. And that was uh, a particularly difficult time for me reading it. And that's and that's the part which I was alluding to earlier when I read it for days and days and days. And then she said, I've written all this so that you can understand. And I just thought, oh, no, 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 you, you don't get to do this. Um, and of course, what was really interesting the reason I do mention it very briefly in the, in the biography is that she was then ashamed of it. Very quickly after leaving Mars, she was saying, I, I don't know what came over me at that time and I, I am mortified that I indulged in such things. And, but I'm, and she says, but I'm still leaving it here for you, biographer. The reason I think it then becomes important is because when she writes about false bread, uh, in false bread, she changes her attitude to the older man, the older uncle who's always been the desired object. And these older uncles who have had sex or raped these young girls has always been this sort of ambivalence of, oh, well, you know, there's desire and, you know, 12 and 14-year-old girls have power. So she still maintains that and she still goes to the um, Adelaide Writers Festival and says, oh, I don't know what it is about me and old men. And as Jane Palfreyman says, she's never seen so many octogenarians line up to have a book signed. Um, so there was that sort of flirting going on. But in Foles Bread, she actually castrates and kills the old uncle when he makes a move on her daughter, the other character does, uh, when Noah does, when he makes a move on Lainey. And that's really significant. And in a letter to her sister, Karen, she said, 
I think my attitudes there were formed after my time with Ma and these dark pornographic times. So so I mention them because it's relevant to her development as a writer and her approach to these older men and the attraction to the young girls. Um, and I think that's relevant. So in one sense, she never regretted, she didn't regret her time with Ma at all, but she was ashamed later on that she had partaken in particular fantasies. And then, of course, she recorded them all. I mean, it's interesting when you talk about uncles, that her uncle said that her portrayal of people was, quote, a curious amalgam of ingenuousness and viciousness. And that, I think, is what gives her writing this kind of electricity and tension. Yes, I think that's right. And when she when she published The Mint Lawn, which was just excoriating, and this portrait of a, a character who was fairly easily identifiable as her husband, uh, she said to the interviewer at the time, yes, uh, I, I quite like it. I think my autobiographical writing is particularly good in its viciousness. So she she really quite... At that stage, and again later on, she said, oh, that really wasn't kind and I really was a terrible person and I shouldn't have done that. But at the time, she sort of reveled in it. It was a power in it. And in one sense, you can say, well, that was unkind. But in another sense, you say there was an awful lot of readers out there who knew nothing about her life and they read the book and they responded to it. And so it has, it has merit. It has uh, artistic value. Uh, let's go to a, a very different aspect of her that I think is also fascinating, which is that much earlier than a lot of other writers of her generation, she became interested in Aboriginal culture. She wanted to know about Bundjalung culture around Grafton. And, and so I'm curious about what instigated that and how far she took it. Yeah, so Bruce Pascoe, who became a very close friend of Gillian's, he first published her when she was only 20, he said, I asked him about this and I asked him about her interest in Aboriginal culture. And he said, well, you know, we talked about it all the time over the, over the decades. <clears throat> but he said, uh, anyone who is invested in the land, anyone who is close to the land can't help but feel it and know it and want to know about it, uh, which was Gillian. But he also said she was smart enough never to try and assume it or, you know, that sort of that white Aborigine idea, you know, oh, I'm so close to the land, therefore I have this spirituality. So she never had any of that kind of approach. But it was also to do with the fact that she was, uh, her parents were from South Africa and from London and England, um, so that they were migrants. She came to this, she's born in this country, is raised very much in nature, doing the bushwalks, camping, living at Gunella Bar. So is invested highly in the rivers, the rocks, the paths, the trees, the ground, the animals, and then gets to a point where she realises that, well, hang on a minute, this is stolen land. This is not, and she, she reaches that fairly early on. Uh, she does know a number of the Bunjalung elders around where she lives and they take her out into country. And then she realised those kids in my class at Ganelabar Infant School, there was at least four or five of them who were Bunjalung kids and they probably spoke language at home. They knew all sorts of cultural uh, knowledge that it never occurred to me to be interested in and, again, chastised herself for not being aware of that but then made it very much a project to educate herself. 
I wonder, Bernadette, whether at any stage, given her willingness to indulge in all sorts of alternative therapies, whether she ever asked for any kind of Aboriginal medicine or Aboriginal healing ritual to be practised on her? She did. She went to a, a healing ritual down at the Kuyong when she was living in Mount Barker. Uh, but she didn't write about it much. I found out about it from Joan Carpenter, who was her friend over there, who's a therapist over there. Um, it was just a, a healing ceremony, just a one-off where they camped and it went overnight to the next day. Uh, she hasn't written about it in her journal, which I find very interesting. There were then two elders from the Grafton area that she went to just prior to her 50th birthday. And actually she had been overseas in Colorado and one of the healers over there, Kenneth Cohen, said to her, you've been searching for these healers all over the world and you haven't even approached the healers in your own backyard, so to speak, you know, what's going on. She then uh, did approach two healers and they, Aboriginal healers, and they told her that she would walk again. They did a smoking ceremony. They talked to her about what was going on in her life and they said that she would walk again. But that was just before her 50th birthday. And she lived for another 18 months after that, but she never walked again. She was beyond being able to walk by that stage. So they were the two times that she specifically uh, sought some kind of healing. For me, the happiest part of the book, the most joyful part of the book, is when she takes off in Anton B. So perhaps for listeners who are unfamiliar with Anton B, you could describe it to us and, and tell us a little bit about her life on the road. Okay, so Gillian, at the age of 38, is uh, the night before her 38th birthday, is taken to hospital and she has endocarditis, which is fortunately diagnosed very quickly by the doctors, although she's had it for about five months. So she has a 40 millimetre growth of infectious stuff on her mitral valve that has then colonised her spleen and liver and her organs are shutting down and she's expected not to last the night. She does last the night, fortunately, and they stabilise her and fly her to Sydney and she undergoes uh, open-heart surgery to replace her mitral valve and she's then sent back to Grafton to recuperate. <clears throat> the medicine that she's been given has destroyed the cilia in her inner ear and so in combination with her MS, which is only then just officially diagnosed, she has also lost a lot of her balance. Not to be put off, she decides, OK, I'm going to get myself into rehabilitation and within a year she's walking with a stick and she decides okay I've been back in Grafton now I've recuperated I really need to get out of here and after my time in hospital I really need intensive silence and aloneness and what I've always wanted to do is to go out into the bush by myself she goes up to the Bellingen Global Music Festival and there's all sorts of travellers there in their vans and they've got fairy lights outside and people are playing the djembe drums and they're dancing and she's thinking, this is my life, I need to get a van. So she sees an ad for a converted 1970s ambulance, a horrible yellow colour, Harper's Gold is the colour, and it's for sale for, I think, $650. And it's being sold by a man called Kevin Bible. And she rings Mr. Bible up and he's got such a beautiful voice. She thinks, oh, well, I've got to buy this. And so sight unseen, she buys this ambulance. 
and it arrives in Grafton on the back of a truck and her father continues to talk about the horror of seeing this thing arrived that had no driver's mirrors and the seat wasn't even attached to the floor and the the number, it it was $4,000 plus to repair it. She kits this ambulance out uh, as a sort of cubby house on wheels, if you like, and says, see you later, Grafton, I'm turning 40. All my life I've popped myself into cages of other men and, you know, just old women and let myself be trapped. I'm finally going to stand on my own feet and off I go. So she's 40 years old. She's pretty thin. She's a bit fragile. She's got MS and she heads into the bush with no plan except that at some point she would turn up in Adelaide and undergo a manor yoga training course which was going to solve all her problems and she was going to become that particular kind of yoga instructor. And off she goes. And then she has adventures. It takes her nearly three years to get to Adelaide and she has adventures along the way, camping in forests, swimming naked in beautiful streams, discovering magnificent ancient cliffs where she sees the sunset and dances. And she doesn't see people for sometimes up to 18 days at a time. And for her, that is pure bliss. And she gets the ambulance bogged at one point, but the old old bushman Roy Burling has taught her how to get a two-ton ambulance out of a bog with a simple pulley and um, block, which she does to a witness who can't believe that she does it. She drives around and at one point, and whenever the car goes, the, the ambulance goes more than 60 k's an hour, the front bonnet flies up. But, you know, she's usually only going 50 k's an hour. It's got no power steering. It's this huge lumbering thing. And she's called it Anton B., after the Angela Banner books, which gave her so much pleasure when she was a kid. And she writes the most extraordinary essay that readers can still listen to on Radio National. They've still got it there, a five-part essay called Alive in Anton B. And it's the story of her disastrous love affair with the macrobiotic man who, in the end, had to rush at a hospital. It's the story of her time in hospital and it's the story of setting off to absolute freedom in Anton B. And it is celebratory. And I remember reading it when it was first published in Heat and a 9,000 word essay and just thinking, what a woman. And the beauty of it was that it was such a physical lifestyle that she became really strong in that first year or two and she could walk a lot better and she could swim again and she felt healthy and beautiful. And, of course, that's when she met Mark Rounds and had that next sensual, sexual relationship, which was so important to her sense of self. So it was a really, truly great couple of years, 2004 to 2008. Fantastic time. I have to ask you, I remember seeing you at the State Library when you were in that archive. And whenever I came across you in the State Library and you had a little plinth that you had her material on in front of you, you had a beatific look on your face. You looked so incredibly happy. Now, given that you have confessed that that you have your own addiction to being immersed in an archive, what on earth can you do next that will follow the intensity and reward of this project? I have no idea. And that is actually a a sadness. I, but then I am trying to be gentle on myself because I remember when I finished the Ghana project, 
I thought, what on earth can I do now? And I do remember coming out of that Greer archive that day and I sent Helen a text and said, you've ruined archives for me. You know, nothing's as interesting. So it was then fantastic to be immersed again in another one and then a totally different story in a different way. And I do feel at the moment it was so hard, but in the end so rewarding that I am at a bit of a loss to think, oh, what do I do now? And I've had a few people ring me up and tell me of the different people whose biographies I must write. Um, but I, I, I'm a bit like Brendan Nile. I sort of think I didn't ever intend to be a biographer. I was just doing this now, although Brendan Nile says that's how she started and now she's written nine biographies. So there is something addictive into the the research and then the weaving of a story and to, to make a life take shape in an authentic and exciting and gripping way. So I guess the project will eventually present itself to me, hopefully not too far in the future. I think you have to accept, Bernadette, that you are now a biographer, whether you like it or not. <laughs> well, I'll take that mantle. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today, Bernadette Brennan. Thank you very much for having me, Carolyn. Gillian Mears may have known she would be the subject of a biography, but she couldn't have known how lucky she would be in having Bernadette Brennan step up to the challenge. The result is a full frontal portrait that does not shy away from the confronting aspects of Gillian's often troubled nature. This is as exciting as biography gets for me, Brennan achieves something thrilling in bringing the reader close to the creative process of a uniquely gifted individual who suffered and loved with equal intensity. She documents the many paradoxes of Mears's life, her cavalier brutality and her passionate nature without judgment. The wildness of her spirit dances on the page and makes you want to go and read all of Gillian's work either again or for the first time, armed with fresh understanding. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by Jennifer Macy and by David Roach for Two Heads Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate and licensed by Lily Pilly IP.